Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 33, I Want a New Drug, in which we talk about late 19th century and early 20th century biochemical research. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Supporters of this podcast can download a supplemental sheet showing some molecular structures I mention in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. While all this new work on the structure of atoms continued, organic chemists weren't lazy. With Perkins, Bayer's, and Grebus' synthesis of various organic dyes, organic chemists' confidence in uncovering the secrets of biochemistry rose. So let's talk more about late 19th century and early 20th century biochemical and medicinal achievements in chemistry. Initially, I will highlight some biochemical studies. First is Richard Willstetter, who wrote his doctoral dissertation in the 1890s on the molecular structure of cocaine. By 1912, he was hired as a professor at the University of Berlin, working on the molecular structure of various other botanical compounds, mostly pigments of fruits and flowers. At this time, he took up research on the bright green pigment of leaves, which is called chlorophyll. He determined that chlorophyll is really a mixture of two separate but similar compounds, chlorophyll A and chlorophyll B. Willstetter found that chlorophyll A is an organic ring with four nitrogen atoms, but in the middle of the ring is a magnesium cation held in place by two of the nitrogens with negative charges. Attached to this ring is a long-chain organic bit. Chlorophyll B is a very similar structure, but has a carbonyl group, a carbon double-bonded to an oxygen attached, which is a polar group. This makes chlorophyll B more soluble in water than chlorophyll A. In essence, these chlorophyll molecules absorb light and act as a catalyst in green plants to convert carbon dioxide to carbohydrates. For this work, he received the Nobel Prize in 1915. Heinrich Wieland studied the acids secreted by the liver called bile acids and worked out their structure in the 1920s. He started his research in 1912 and called this difficult research a dure Strukturwüste, or arid structural desert, because almost nothing was known about them chemically, eventually publishing 38 papers. Bile acids, which sound icky, actually are a class of biochemical compounds called steroids, and even related to the poison bufotoxin secreted by the bufo vulgaris toad found in Europe. Other steroid or steroid-like compounds include cholesterol, vitamin D3, and the sex hormones estradiol and testosterone. In fact, another German chemist, Adolf Windaus, researched cholesterol and vitamin D. These compounds generally have a characteristic four-carbon ring structure. 
Their widespread existence in the biological world indicates how important they are, and Wieland and Windaus accordingly got a Nobel Prize for their work in 1928. Speaking of vitamins, we next move to Paul Karrer, a Swiss chemist. He started his research on the structure of plant pigments as Wilstetter did, but Karrer studied specifically yellow-colored carotenoids. Carotenoids, as Karrer determined, are long-chain organic molecules with alternating single and double bonds connecting the carbons. At each end of the carotene molecule is a benzene ring. In particular, you may have heard of the red-orange pigment beta-carotene found in carrots, the structure of which Karrer determined in 1930. In your gut, a specific enzyme slices beta-carotene into two vitamin A molecules. Carotenes are strongly colored in the yellow to red range. Why that is hinges on the electron structure around the whole carotene molecule and its alternating single and double bonded carbons, but we haven't reached that advanced knowledge yet in our podcast. A vitamin only recognized in the 1930s is vitamin B6. Paul Gyorgy, a Hungarian, later American, researcher, found in 1934 that rats developed a pellagra-type skin condition even when on a thiamine diet, so he called this unknown factor vitamin B6. Within two years, he was able to isolate this vitamin, and then German biochemist Richard Kuhn synthesized it by 1938. B6 is actually a set of half a dozen very similar organic compounds all with a pyridine structure, that is, a benzene molecule in which one of the carbons is substituted with a nitrogen atom. Another common series of chemicals in plants, most usually in conifer trees such as pine trees, is the terpenes. The name terpene was invented by Kekulé in 1866 as a shortened form of turpentine but we are not talking about that mixture of compounds. Instead, we are discussing a series of compounds which likely you have smelled when walking through a pine forest, or perhaps in a commercial cleaning solution. Otto Wallach, yet another German chemist, worked out the structure of these terpene molecules, which generally are a cyclohexane, ring of six carbons, with a crossbridge of a carbon atom plus various small units hanging off of the cyclohexane. These molecules and the steroids gave organic chemists a serious run for their money, trying to determine their stereochemistry, because the cross bridges and dangly bits can have a variety of orientations which affect their odor and biochemical activity. For organometallic chemistry somewhat related to chlorophyll, German chemist Hans Fischer studied the structure of chlorophyll, but also the molecule related to hemoglobin called hemin. Like the organic ring structure of chlorophyll with nitrogens supporting a magnesium ion, hemin has a very similar ring structure with nitrogens supporting an iron ion. Overall, biochemists now began to realize that many biochemical compounds were built of similar basic skeletal structures. So, for example, we have the whole class of steroids found throughout living creatures, the carotenoids, 
the organometallic rings of chlorophyll and heme. This similarity between a variety of molecules was more circumstantial evidence for the basic relatedness of life and evolutionary biology. Let's continue onward. English chemist Robert Robinson, also an amateur chess player, looked at a class of biochemical compounds called alkaloids. Alkaloids are organic compounds in nature whose molecules have at least one nitrogen atom though their name implies that they are alkaline or basic, and a large fraction of this class are basic, some are neutral and some are even slightly acidic. For practical purposes, many have medicinal properties, others can be psychoactive, pain-killing, antibacterial, stimulant, or even toxic. It sounds like a catch-all term, and in many ways it is. Robinson's work, which earned him a Nobel Prize, looked at morphine, a painkiller, and strychnine, a neurotoxin. Strychnine was one of the most complicated organic molecules known in the early 1920s and is even related to the terpenes we mentioned earlier. Phoebus Levine, a Russian-American biochemist at the Rockefeller Institute in New York, researched the components of DNA the chemical holding genetic information, in the early 1900s. At that time, DNA's role in genetics was unknown, however. Levine was an expert in sugars, which I mentioned in an earlier episode are all named with the suffix os, O-S-E. One of the sugars he examined in 1909 was D-ribose, which is found in RNA. A couple of decades later, he discovered the sugar 2-deoxyribose in DNA, which has one oxygen removed from D-ribose, hence the name including deoxy. He also isolated the building blocks of DNA, called nucleotides, and figured out how they connected together. By the way, this gives us a chance here to note that RNA stands for ribonucleic acid, and DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, a nod to the two sugars, one lacking an oxygen atom. The nucleotides we mentioned are made of nitrogen-containing bases, all found in approximately equal amounts in RNA and DNA, plus the ribose sugar. DNA has the bases adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine, RNA has the bases adenine, cytosine, guanine, and uracil. Given the roughly equal amounts of each base in both molecules, Levine offered a model of the DNA and RNA structure, which all had four nucleotides connected in a square linked by phosphate groups. This was the tetranucleotide hypothesis, which, unfortunately, led researchers down a wild goose chase in genetics for a couple of decades. So now we come to some early synthetic successes with bioactive compounds called drugs, having mentioned a few here and there already. If you have read the classic book Microbe Hunters, published in 1926 by Paul de Cruyff, you might remember his discussion of Paul Ehrlich, a German bacteriologist. 
One of his innovations in the 1880s was discovering organic compounds that stain living cells so that they can be identified more easily under a microscope. He is particularly noted for methylene blue, an organic salt composed of three benzene rings. He was also inspired to use it as a treatment for malaria. It turns out that Paul Karrer, of carotenoid fame, was a student of Ehrlich. But even more importantly, Ehrlich began testing out arsenic-based organic compounds first synthesized in 1907 in his laboratory. The idea was that arsenic was below nitrogen in the periodic table, so maybe it would act in a similar way chemically for medicinal purposes. In fact, in 1905, an organic arsenic compound called atoxyl was used to cure chickens of a disease called spirilla, but was too toxic for people. By 1909, Ehrlich's assistant, Sahachiro Hata, discovered that compound 606, or arsphenamine, or salvarsan, killed syphilis spirochetes as well as spirilla, but was less toxic to people, and thus better than the standard mercury-based compounds at the time. Arsphenamine's actual structure is still under debate, but more recent research indicates it is likely a ring of three arsenic groups with organic groups, mixed together with a ring of five arsenic groups with organic groups. Ehrlich's work on synthetic drugs is considered to be the beginning of what now is called chemotherapy, using particular chemical compounds to treat diseases. Around the same time, in 1908, an organic compound called sulfanilamide was synthesized by Austrian chemist Paul Gelmo. It has a benzene ring from which dangle an amine and a sulfanamide. At the time, it wasn't found to be practical, and only in the 1930s did German chemist Gerhard Domach discover that it was an antibacterial compound. Currently, it's used to treat fungal infections. Simultaneously, Fritz Meech experimented on azo dyes, molecules with two nitrogens connected by a double bond, and added a sulfanamonide group into these molecules. He found that the red dye cured streptococcal infections, and he called it Prontosil rubrum. Much of the work was done at IG Farben, the dye conglomerate later guilty of genocide but already there was a better compound in the works. Alexander Fleming, in 1928, discovered accidentally that penicillin, a product of penicillium mold, also killed bacteria, and was first used two years later to cure an eye infection. The active component of the antibiotic, though, wasn't isolated until 1940, and soon, with World War II raging, the race was on to scale up production. By 1945, culturing the mold and concentrating the product was able to generate half a ton of penicillin per month. The basic structure of penicillin is a five-membered organic ring fused to a four-membered ring. You may also be aware that the problem of bacterial resistance to penicillin and related antibiotics is now growing because of overuse. Bacteria are constantly evolving ways to block antibiotic activity. Another important biochemical class of compounds is protein. This class is a bit different from almost all the previous ones mentioned 
except DNA and RNA, which we shall return to later. The reason is that they can be ginormous molecules, and chemists of the late 19th and early 20th century weren't quite ready to wrap their minds around the huge size of proteins or DNA or other polymers, which will merit separate episodes. But even so, chemists could analyze them in terms of elements and building blocks, like RNA and DNA, which is what chemists of that era did. The first work toward researching whole protein molecules, though, began in the 19th century with Scottish chemist Thomas Graham. By 1829, he was looking at a physical property of compounds, the rate of diffusion. Diffusion, as he viewed it, was how gas molecules gradually intermingle when you bring them together. Initially, he looked at this diffusion rate by allowing gases to escape from narrow tubes and tiny holes. Within a couple of years, he determined that gas diffusion was inversely proportional to the square root of the gas's molecular weight and became known as Graham's Law. Then Graham looked at compounds dissolved in other things, like salt, copper sulfate, or sugar in water, and how they passed through parchment, which seemed to have a lot of tiny holes. But some materials, like glue, gum arabic, and gelatin, did not travel through parchment, indicating that they were made of large molecules unable to pass through. Graham divided these materials into two types, crystalloids, which could worm their way through microscopic holes, and colloids, which could not. Colloid comes from Greek kola, meaning glue. So eventually, colloid chemistry became the study of huge molecules. We've already talked about colligative properties, particularly osmotic pressure, when larger molecules cannot move past a porous barrier, but water, a smaller molecule, can. Using osmotic pressure, the German botanist Wilhelm Pfeiffer found in 1877 the first method for estimating molecular weight. He was researching plant cells. About half a century later, Swedish chemist Theodor Svedberg was also researching colloids and built a series of centrifuges which spin containers of mixtures with the goal of separating out the components. Svedberg's advance was to automate this machinery to spin up to 42,000 RPM, generating a force of up to 100,000 Gs. By the way, Svedberg's research beginning around 1908 gave additional credence to the existence of molecules. Arne Tisselius, an assistant to Svedberg, invented an electrical method in the early 1930s for separating huge molecules based on how electrical charge varies around the surface of such molecules. It is called electrophoresis. But again, these methods tell something about the overall physical properties of proteins, but not how they are constructed chemically. It turns out that proteins are constructed from about 20 subunits called amino acids. They all have similarities, that is, all amino acids have an amino group and a carboxylic acid group, COOH. There are other side chains that depend on the particular amino acid. But if you have 20 of these similar molecules, trying to determine how these subunits, with hundreds if not thousands of them, are put together to make proteins, this can be a daunting task.
Emil Fischer, whom we met a while ago determining the stereochemistry of sugars, also got interested in this problem. By 1907, he showed that amino acids in proteins are connected together by what is called a peptide bond, in which the amino of one amino acid loses a hydrogen, and the carboxylic acid of another amino acid loses a hydroxide, and the two form a bond together in a condensation reaction. The side product of the H and OH is, of course, a water molecule H2O. Fischer actually linked 18 amino acids together synthetically and formed a small artificial protein with a molecular weight of 1,213. So, by the first quarter of the 20th century, chemists knew how proteins were built, but not the exact order of the amino acids in particular proteins. That would have to wait a couple of decades, and we shall talk about it later. In our next episode, we look at more organic molecules, this time whose physical properties were often considered more important than their biochemical properties, for they began to be used as new materials for the world. That is, we look at the first polymers. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.